Hi, everyone. Welcome to the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui, and I am a practicing cardiothoracic surgeon who specializes in the treatment of atrial fibrillation. Throughout my career, I've been blessed to work side by side with some of the brightest minds in atrial fibrillation treatment, diagnosis, and prevention. And the whole purpose of this podcast is to share those insights with you by giving you a front row seat to intimate conversations with AFib experts from around the world. So turn up the volume, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui. In this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with the founder and CEO of StopAFib.org, Melanie Truehills. What an inspirational person. I mean, she talks about her initial story, her narrative with atrial fibrillation and how she underwent treatment, and then ultimately how she started StopAFib.org and all the myriad of things that it's involved with from patient-centered research to patient education to provider education. I mean, they're really doing phenomenal work over there. So I had a great time doing this uh, conversation, this episode. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Melanie Truehills, the founder and CEO of StopAFib.org. So hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of All Things AFib. I have such the pleasure today to not just speak with somebody who's passionate about atrial fibrillation, but an atrial fibrillation patient herself. So let's not delay this. Let's get right into it. It's an absolute pleasure to have on Melanie Truehills, the CEO and the founder and AFib survivor of StopAFib.org. Hi, Melanie. Hi there. Thank you so much, Dr. Kiankui, for having me on your show today. (laughs) Well, thanks for being here. I mean, as a physician, we get to talk with patients all the time in clinic, postoperatively, everything. But I thought it would be great to just talk to somebody who not only went through that experience of having AFib and then being treated successfully, but was so passionate that you decided to start a whole organization, an entire movement that you've named StopAFib.org. So where do you want to start? Do you want to start with your own personal fight with AFib or do you want to start with your organization? Why don't we start with my personal fight? Because that really led into the organization. First of all, when my heart all of a sudden started racing and thumping and pounding, and I didn't know what was going on. And so the emergency room, they said, you've had atrial fibrillation. And, you know, I was even having numbness in my right leg and behind my right eye. And they said, you've had atrial fibrillation and likely either multiple blood clots or a clot that split. And we need to put you on a blood thinner. So they put me on an anticoagulant and they put me on other medications, sent me home and said, you'll do fine. But I wasn't fine. AFib would just kind of sneak up on me when I was least expecting it. And that happened for really almost two years after about 22 months. And let me preface it by saying I was never stable. That was A long time ago, Coumadin was our only option, and I was never stable on Coumadin. My INRs were ping-ponging all over the place to the point that they were having me do blood draws twice a week and adjusting my Coumadin. Really? 
twice a week and we were still, we still couldn't get it stable. And so I was really struggling with that. And after, after going through that, I felt like I was literally a stroke walking around waiting to happen because I could never be stable on Coumadin. After 22 months, I discovered this newish procedure. It was new at the time. And that was a minimally invasive surgical ablation. And that one sounded like a no-brainer to me. It was being done at the center where my health plan was. And so I had a conversation with my doctor. And she said, I just spoke with the surgeons a couple of weeks ago. Let me refer you to them to have a conversation with them. So I did. And it was newish. They had done less than 20 procedures at the time. And the surgeon spent probably two hours with me, which wow. right there. That was a <laughs> That's going to be more time than we spend together today. That's phenomenal. Wow. Yeah, two hour appointment. Quite, okay. Quite a shock and showed me videos and introduced me to the other members of the surgical team. And we basically left with, let me think about it. I went home, discussed it with my husband. He said, sounds like a no-brainer to me too. Let's do it. And we scheduled the procedure. Like in 10 days, I was in surgery. Wow. Okay. Now, wow. there's a little bit longer wait these days probably sure. for surgery. But sure. at the time, it was a very new procedure. That was in 2005. Okay. And a lot of what precipitated that was the research that came out that summer that said that those who have difficulty staying stable on Coumadin likely have a genetic reason for it. And I knew that I could not go through this nightmare the rest of my life and I needed to do something. And the thing that really made a difference for me was the fact that the left atrial appendage would be dealt with. And so I could, I could get rid of that nightmare of trying to stay stable on Coumadin. And one of the new drugs was coming along, but it failed along about that time. And it was like, I need something now. I really can't wait. And so I went ahead with the procedure and I've been AFib free ever since. Wow. That was September of 2005. Been AFib free for, you know, more than 16 years now. So that was a huge deal for me to find my solution. And I decided that if that was my solution, was that possibly other people's solutions? And were there other solutions out there? I had decided on the surgery because at the time, the success rates were not that great with catheter ablation. And I decided the surgery was a better option for me. But for some people, the catheter ablation might be a good option. And so once I was AFib free and knew I was AFib free, I decided that I can't stand on the sidelines and watch other people suffer like I did. I really need to do something. And therefore, I started this organization, StopAFib.org, to help people who are living with AFib to get their lives back. Our mission also includes helping doctors and patients communicate more effectively with each other. Well, a lot of that's by bringing the patient's level of understanding and knowledge and medical terminology up so that they can communicate better with their doctors. The other thing that has been really important along the way is to raise awareness of AFib and help people get diagnosed and treated before they have a stroke. Right. Wow. There's so much to cover there. I'm going to pick your brains about a bunch of that stuff. Do you have any sense of how long you were in AFib before that first visit to the emergency department? 
I don't believe I was ever an aphid before. Okay. I believe that was really a first occurrence. And it happened about seven months after having had a stent procedure. I feel like because I had underlying heart disease, I probably had inflammation and inflammation can drive AFib. And that was probably what happened is it was the inflammation that really triggered the AFib. But I felt it so acute. My heart rate would get up to 200 as much as 300 beats a minute. And you can't not feel that. I think a lot of people that don't feel their AFib, it's because their heart rate is so similar to what it normally would be. But those of us that have higher heart rates, typically probably above 130 or 140, feel it extremely acutely. You can't miss it. Right. But I only had AFib 22 months before I actually had a procedure. From that first time through until I went into surgery was only 22 months. Gotcha. What's scary is, is I'm sure with that, that you've learned in a lot of your patients talk about when folks present, sometimes it's with that devastating complication of having a stroke. And it seems like, thank God, you've not suffered any sort of strokes from your AFib or when you had AFib, but it is scary that patients typically their first presentation is with that devastating stroke. So I'm glad that you were able to get care pretty quickly. That being said, tell me more about essentially the torture that you went through for 22 months, INR checks, kind of hoping it would go away, hoping you you weren't going to have a stroke. I mean, yes, 22 months is pretty quick, right? From diagnosis to surgery. But on the other side, it also seems like a long time to have to try to deal with something. It absolutely was. And at the time I was working and it's very disruptive when you're working. Because you never know when that AFib beast is going to strike and what you're going to be doing. Are you going to be in a meeting? Are you able to focus? Or are you just going to have to get up and leave? And a lot of AFib patients have told me that they were in a situation where they just couldn't stay in the meetings, that they just had to get up and leave. So that part of it's really hard is it just totally hijacks your life. So when I'm speaking at medical conferences, One of the things that I like to do is help doctors understand what it kind of feels like, because unless you've had it, you just can't imagine what it feels like. And so I tell doctors to think about how it feels when you're running and it's your heart's pounding and it's hard to catch your breath. I want you to stop running. Things get back to normal. But what if they didn't? What if you were running a marathon 24 hours a day with your heart pounding, unable to breathe? You can't work, you can't focus, you can't think, you can't sleep. And that's what it's like to be an AFib. Your heart is just doing flip-flops. It's like a fish flopping around in your chest. And it just totally takes over your life. So you really can't focus on anything else when you're an AFib, at least if your heart rate's really high. So for those of us that feel it acutely because our heart rate is high when we're in AFib. You really feel like a limp dish rag when it's all over with. You're just exhausted. So when you finally do convert, you just want to sleep for two days because (laughs) you're just so exhausted from what it's done to you. I had cases where I'd be out, you know, like walking the dog and I'd be a mile or half a mile away from home. And all of a sudden my heart would take off racing. I got to the point After that first time that happened and calling my husband and asking to come pick me up because I was just doubled over, I could not breathe. 
And so I called the doctor and the doctor said, well, take another beta blocker. So I took another beta blocker and it finally converted. But after that, I started carrying my beta blocker with me everywhere, even just to go out and walk the dog. It takes over your life because you have to think about things that you wouldn't normally think about. And I never could figure out what brought it on. Sometimes I could be out walking. Other times I might be washing the dog or I might be just working in the kitchen and all of a sudden it just kicks off. Sometimes it appeared to be stress. Other times it might be something else. And so you never really know what's going to precipitate an AFib episode. And that's really probably the most frustrating part of it because everything is just rocking along fine. And all of a sudden you feel that pause in your heart and it's coming and it just goes into overdrive at that point. And that changes everything. You just have to stop what you're doing, sit down and probably get family members to come help you if you're in the middle of doing something. And it just, it totally hijacks your life. And and that's really just the physical part of it. Emotional part of never knowing when that beast is going to strike really takes a toll on you. And not knowing if you can commit to spending time with family and friends, or if you're going to be an AFib and not able to do anything. So it takes an emotional toll too. But maybe one of the worst things is the financial toll because we're the frequent flyers of the emergency department. And with huge medical bills and co-pays and all the things that go with it, and you go to the emergency room and you're warehoused in the hall 12 hours until you convert. And so you wonder, could I stay home and just convert at home? And so that's when we usually ask our doctors for some guidance as to, When should I go to the emergency room and when should I just stay home? And so there's so many things related to it that unless you've had it, it's hard to really know. Wow, that's really interesting. You know, it's oftentimes when we're in the clinic, we talk about kind of the physical symptoms. We rarely, if ever, get into the emotional aspect, let alone the financial. We're so separated from the financial side, but not just for the insurance side, but this is honestly the first time I've heard from anybody about the financial burden of continually going to the emergency department, emotional and physical burdens of going there and sitting in a room, waiting till you convert, thinking about, well, could I have just dealt with this at home on my own? That's fascinating. I mean, fascinating on one hand, but also really troubling because we don't, as physicians, we often don't hear about these things in the clinic. Because right. maybe they're at their, the patient's at their wit's end. And at that point, they're just saying, hey, look, I've tolerated this as much as I possibly can. Please just help me, offer me whatever you, you do. Right. And this is why it's so important for patients to be able to share with doctors what this experience is like. And that's why I feel very privileged to be here on your podcast and also to speak at medical conferences and other opportunities to share with doctors what this is like and what it's all about to have AFib. Yeah. What's frustrating as a provider too, for somebody who's really passionate about AFib is we keep learning from multiple databases that most providers essentially don't take AFib seriously as, as long or as far as the, the surgical side, if you will. There's a lot of surgeons out there who don't just treat standalone atrial fibrillation as in your setting, but let's say we're presented with somebody who has other heart disease, valve problems, coronary disease, 
and we're taking them to the operating room for that other indication as well. Let's say someone needs bypass surgery. It's really disturbing how low the rates of AFib surgery are in those other settings. I had a point. I had a point. (laughs) And and that's one of the messages that we give to patients is if you've got to go in for valve repair or for a bypass and you have AFib, you need to be seeing a surgeon who can do the maze procedure at the same time, a concomitant maze, because it doesn't make sense to have to go through two separate procedures when you could do it in one. And probably only 25 to 35% of patients are actually getting both procedures at the time they go in for bypass or valve repair. Right. That's exactly right. Have you seen it change since when you had your your surgery in 2005? Are patients coming to your conferences with different concerns now than they had back then? Absolutely. And a lot of it is because they've learned so much from the conference. First of all, from our website and then the conference we've been doing since 2013. And that is, again, when we started out that first year, we were doing it in conjunction with one of the hospitals. And they said, you know, we don't think patients can tolerate, you know, these are seniors. We don't think they can tolerate a full day. We think we should only do a half day. And so we did a half day. And the, the word from patients was, we need a whole lot more than this. And so the next year, we made it a day and a half. And they kept saying, but we need way more than this. So we moved to two and a half days and that seems to have been just the right mix. And so in 2016, we did our first two and a half day conference and it's been two and a half days ever since. And so they learned so much from hearing from experts about procedures and managing AFib and lifestyle and all the things that they need to know about. And so because of that, there's a The base level of knowledge is much, much higher to start with. So when they're coming to ask their doctors questions, they're already at a much more advanced level to have that conversation with their doctors about what their options are, what their treatment plan should look like, et cetera. So we find that the first few years it was, okay, what is this AFib stuff and what do I do about it? And what are are the meds I'm taking? And now it's more about should I have this procedure or that procedure? And here are the things that I know and here's what I don't know. And so the conversations are at a much higher level today as a result of the patient conference. Plus, not only do we make the conference available in person when there's no COVID around, but we also live stream and we've had as many as a thousand people from around the globe watch the live stream as well. And then we also make it available initially for a small fee to help us recoup the cost of actually doing it. And then after that year, then that recordings of that conference becomes free. And so they can go to our Stop AFib library. It's just really simple. It's stopafiblibrary.com to sign up. And then they have access to well over 100 hours of recordings from the conferences all the way everything all the way back to 2013, our first conference, as well as all the webinars that we've done, plus a masterclass with Dr. Prostowski. So there's a lot of lot of great content there. And so because they watch that and watch year after year of it, their educational level is coming up. And so they can ask much better questions of their doctors and better participate in shared decision-making as well. Right. Do you find that there's any single 
point of education or knowledge that today as providers, we're not doing a good job of discussing with our patients? Is there something that's we're just not adequately clarifying with patients? Is there some sort of confusing point that we keep making over and over again? So let me give you an example that I actually learned from Dr. Eric Krzyzewski has a conference for his region that's mostly with healthcare professionals, nurses and generalists and, and so forth. And he asked me to come in and be the opening keynote for that conference and to take questions. And as he and I did the Q&A together, he commented that he had learned from what I said that a new appointment for a newly diagnosed patient really should be two appointments. He said, what I need to do is handle the most important things first. Let's manage their stroke risk from that very first appointment. Let's make sure they're not in trouble and deal with anything that's really urgent. And then he said, I'm going to send them home and ask them to check out your site, learn from it, come back, especially bring a family member to, to help with keeping track of the questions. And then let's have a discussion and start talking about what is the appropriate treatment from here on out. I think that a lot of times everything gets shoved into the first appointment and people are still in shock. They really are like deer in the headlights and they don't know what they don't know. And then all of a sudden they're bombarded with a lot of medical terminology or things they don't understand. And they're so overwhelmed that they're scared to ask. And so they don't catch most of it. So by doing it as two appointments, he's able to get the important stuff first, help them find a place to get educated, and then have them come back and have a more productive conversation about what the future looks like. And so I think that's something that really should be taken to heart by any doctor that's seeing a new patient. Now, surgeons typically are getting referred to from cardiology and maybe electrophysiology. But you may sometimes encounter a patient when you're going to do some kind of surgery for them and they don't know that they have AFib and and you pick that up. And so that's an opportunity for the surgeons as well to be aware that the deer in the headlights phase is what they're going through the first time they hear about AFib. They don't know what it is. They think they're going to die and they can freak out. We at StopAFib.org spend a lot of time scraping new patients off the ceiling to help them figure out what they need to know right away and what kinds of questions they need to be asking their doctors. So I think that we can do a better job, both patients and doctors, of making sure that we're level setting and that patients are understanding what their doctors are saying. And the honest is on patients as well to say, doc, I'm sorry, I don't really understand that. But patients are afraid to do that. And so we need to step up and do that as patients as well. So it's really a two-way street, but I think we need better communication from from the get-go to make sure that patients are aware of what their AFib is, what they can control about it, what medications they need and what they're for. And then the next step is what do we do now and moving forward? And so one of the things that's a very common misperception among patients is they're on a medication. They know it's for their AFib, but they don't know what it does. They don't know if they're on rate control, if they're on rhythm control, or if this is an anticoagulant. 
And so when they're not in AFib, they say, oh, I feel fine. I must not need my med. And then they stop taking it and they may not tell the doctor. And so it's really important that patients understand. And maybe it's just having something written down to take home that they can process later. But they need to know what their meds are and what they're for. Is it for controlling the heart's rate? Is it for putting the heart back into rhythm? Or is it for preventing those strokes that can happen even when I'm not in AFib? That's really interesting. Just talking about the, it's almost like a cancer diagnosis, if you will, making that analogy where if we see a patient for the first time and we're talking about AFib, that there's this awe and shock moment, and then they don't hear everything else. And it's not how we typically think about AFib, especially not as a surgeon, because a lot of times they're coming to us with a diagnosis, but You would be surprised how many times I feel like I'm for the first time educating the patient on what AFib is and then how we're going to go about treating it. And as a provider, it's great to hear that feedback from you and from everyone you've interacted with, because it probably tells me that, like you said, that two hour conversation you had the first time is actually probably of the more appropriate length than our typical half hour, 45 minute conversation. Right. And and one of the things that I have said in the past at medical conferences that I don't say as much now, but I think is really important, is that doctors will, one of the phrases not to use is AFib won't kill you. Because what happens is when you use the K word, kill, they that stops them right dead in their tracks. And they I didn't realize it was quite as serious. Right. And so they're processing that and they never hear the rest of what you say. Because doctors will often say, well, AFib won't kill you, but you might have a stroke and they don't hear any of that. And so surveys um, from the American Heart Association and from others have found that doctors tell their patients that they could have a stroke and what needs to be done to prevent the stroke. And sometimes only half of patients even heard any of that. And that may have been because they had a family member there with them. And that family member remembered it and mentioned it. But most patients don't hear anything about their stroke risk, at least not that first time, especially when the AFib won't kill you phrase gets trotted out before the discussion about strokes, because that just stops them dead in their tracks. Interesting. Have you found that patients have changed their goals of treatment with nowadays with all the new anticoagulants, right? Whether you're talking about NOAX, DOAX. It's almost easier to be on an anticoagulant now than it was when you were first taking Coumadin. Do you find that the conversations or the goals have changed for patients where they are less worried about stroke and now they're more worried about other things like heart failure or cardiomyopathy or is stroke still at the top of the list for patients? Yeah, stroke is still at the top of the list. And one of the really frustrating things is that we so often hear people say, I don't want to take any medications. I'm not going to take that blasted blood thinner. Right, right. I'm going to go find something natural. And they will go off and search on the internet and they'll find various things that are supposed to be blood thinners and they'll do that instead of taking the anticoagulant. And even worse, a lot of them are still thinking that aspirin is still a viable option even though it's not, it's been out of some of the guidelines since 2014 Mm -hmm. and others, you know, have pulled it out more recently, but they still think that aspirin is viable. I will have that conversation with patients every single day that aspirin is not effective for preventing AFib-related strokes. 
So I think stroke is still a big deal, but a lot of times patients don't hear or don't remember having the conversation with their doctor about their stroke risk. And then they'll come to a discussion forum where there's discussion about stroke and they'll say, oh, I'm not going to take that nasty medication. I'm going to go find something natural. And that's still a huge problem. We educate them on what the options are and how those other things have no evidence behind them. Just as likely to have a stroke when they're on those as not. You know, we try to help them understand that. But we're not to the point where heart failure and tachycardia um, myopathy is even in, you know, on their radar. The other issues that can happen are things that no doctor has told them about. And so they're not really aware that might be a problem. Now, the doctor may have said that they have heart failure, but they may not have heard it. We're still finding that stroke is the big thing to deal with and the other issues are just not so important yet, but we're trying to help them understand. HEFPAF is a real problem and very prominent in the AFib patient community, and yet we still don't have a whole lot of answers there. There are some medication options, but really understanding what patients need to do is something that a lot of doctors aren't even cognizant of at this point. And that brings me to another point. A lot of AFib patients are being managed by generalists or sometimes general cardiologists. But in many cases, the doctors that are treating them think they know what they need to know and don't realize what they don't know. And patients are not getting referred to specialists. So as part of our AFib Optimal Treatment Task Force, uh, not quite a decade ago, but quite a few years ago, we did a survey of generalists and geriatricians and found that they refer patients to specialists when the AFib patient is very young, very old, or very complicated. Otherwise, they believe that they know enough to treat the patient. And so in many cases, they may have HEFPAF and nobody knows it. And so getting patients to specialists is a really important part of their getting treated properly. Interesting. And just for the the listeners who are not familiar with that term half pep, we're talking about heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, as opposed to half ref, which is heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, which we typically understand a lot. But we know that the patient who has a reduced ejection fraction has heart failure versus the patient who does not. It's often diastolic or like we've talked about. I wanted thank to you, bring up. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, sure. For me. <laughs> sure. With you doctors, know, I'm just so used to using the uh, jargon absolutely, too. Absolutely. <laughs> I do that with patients, but I do with doctors. Sure, sure. <laughs> I wanted to get your thoughts on this evolution of left atrial appendage management and specifically the introduction of the watchman and the amulet, because my sense is that the natural way of things would be, or that I've seen, is that patients, especially kind of awkwardly or or uncomfortably younger patients, are saying... I'm just going to get my watchman and I'm not going to worry about my AFib because now I'm not going to have a stroke. Is that something you're seeing with the with your colleagues in your organization and all the patients you interact with? So first off, there's been this evolution. When I had my procedure, left atrial appendages were being stapled, oversewn, clipped off, all of those kinds of things. And then the atrial clip came along. Patients are used to the idea of getting the atriclip, the patients that are getting the minimally invasive surgery. 
there's been a lot of knowledge in the patient community about that. And then the watchman came along and patients were saying, oh, that's something that I can get with an ablation. Well, initially those were being done as separate procedures, the ablation and, you know, then later possibly the watchman. And I know that there has been some movement of with some doctors to doing both in the same procedure. And patients will say, I want to get them both. And so they will, you know, want to opt for getting everything taken care of at once. And so they do know that taking care of the left atrial appendage is an option. I don't see it very often as a viable option to not deal with their AFib because AFib is so uncomfortable that for many of them, it's not just about getting rid of the stroke risk. It's also about getting rid of the AFib. So you may have, we find that the asymptomatic tend to be older. And so for them, just getting the watchman or the amulet may be something that they consider. But for younger folks, they need both. And We rarely hear anybody say, oh, I'll just do the watchman or the amulet and not worry about the AFib. That's that's just not something we even hear about anymore. Interesting. The other point you made about the fact of specialists, in our series, so we're at a big hybrid AFib center. When we looked at our data, the average patient is nearly six years out from their initial diagnosis before we see them and operate on them. What's the disconnect? I mean, because, I mean, to be honest with you, our local EPs are seeing these patients essentially right before we see them, because by the time they get to the electrophysiologist, they're saying, hey, look, you've had AFib for six years. I'm not going to be able to treat this effectively. I'm going to turn around and I'm going to work with my surgeon and do a hybrid approach. What is that disconnect between the generalist, the internist, and then the arrhythmia specialist, if you will, whether it's an EP or a surgeon? Right. So when the thermocool trial for the for catheter ablation first came out and I was interviewing Dr. Wilbur, who was the principal investigator, I asked him, I said, I'm starting to hear that there's this window of opportunity for getting an ablation or getting something done about AFib. And you know, what does that look like? And he said, well, typically you should consider within two to three years because it, if it starts getting worse, it's going to be harder to deal with. So I have been, I shared that message with the patient community, and I've also echoed that message, knowing that the worse it gets, the harder it is to fix. And then Dr. Prostowski is on our board of directors, and he also speaks at our patient conference each year. And he echoes that same message that you need to get something done sooner rather than later. And that if you wait too long, that it's really hard to fix. And he said the most frustrating thing for him is when a patient is referred to him and he says, I'm sorry, it's really too late to do anything. If you had come several years ago, I might could have done something, but I can't do anything now. And so he delivers that message to patients as well. And so we believe that patients may not get referred as quickly by the generalist to a specialist on their own if they're not pushing for it. And so patients need to be asking about that and knowing that there probably is a window to have it easy. Mine was pretty easy. I'd only done, I'd only been an AFib episodically for 22 months. So mine was fairly easy to fix. But for somebody that's been in it for five or six years, 
that's going to be a whole lot harder to fix because of the amount of fibrosis that's built up is the scar tissue in the heart. So we let patients know that's what's going on. AFib begets AFib. You're going to keep building scar tissue in the heart and it's going to be harder to fix. And so if your generalist is not referring you, you need to be thinking about what your plan should be and potentially asking for a referral to a specialist. So I can't do anything about the generalist, but I can do something about patients asking their doctors when is the right time to be referred and and not letting it just keep slipping out until it's too late to do something. Right. We've been doing these seminars, or at least I should say we were doing seminars (laughs) before COVID. They were very well attended. You know, you'd get a couple hundred people who would come out, very small percentage of them who were actively engaged in their AFib care from their their generalists or internists. And we would get these direct patients who would come to then to the office and have a new patient appointment. We talked to them about everything. So it's definitely kind of direct-to-patient education seems to be a a worthwhile engagement for folks. Absolutely. And patients are a lot more knowledgeable today, and patients are more empowered to do something about their situation today. Having the internet where they can go Google their condition and find a lot of information is a really good thing, but we also caution them to be suspect about the information they find and careful about what they choose. So for example, we tell them to look for the Han code seal that's from the Health on the Net Foundation. It's a red, blue, black, and white seal that certifies that website has met the eight guiding principles of a credible, trustworthy medical website. And so our site has it, and you can click on the seal on our site and click over to how we've met those eight guiding principles. Now, right now is the time of year that we're needing to renew ours. So we're in the renewal process right now. Ours will be updated again really soon after they've reviewed our site to make sure that it's credible and trustworthy. And so patients need to be looking for that. And doctors can tell their patients to look for that kind of information as well. So can you say that one more time for the listeners, spell that out for us so the patients know? Absolutely. It's HON, H-O-N, and the HON code is from the Health on the Net Foundation. And that's a foundation, international foundation in Switzerland that actually certifies that websites that are health and medical related meet the eight guiding principles of a credible and trustworthy medical website. Great. That's awesome information. There is so much information out there. I mean, you can hop on Google and hit AFib and before you get any good information, you just see a bunch of advertisements. <laughs> so what is the next phase? I mean, we're at the point where we've said, okay, AFib's a problem. It's not just something you can let go of. It's not just amiodarone and Coumadin for the rest of your life. Let's treat it. Patients are engaging more and more. What's What do you see as kind of that next threshold to allow us to take better care of folks who have AFib? Right. So there are a whole bunch of answers embedded in that one question. So first of all, it's worth doctors knowing that patients will tend to, about half of AFib patients will tend to want meds and about half of them will want procedures and they want to just skip right over the meds and go straight to a procedure. So personalizing for the patient is really important. That's shared decision-making, but the root of that is really understanding the patient values and preferences. So that's a really big deal. One example of that is that AFib patients fear strokes. 
And that is a fate worse than death. Having a debilitating stroke is a real problem. And yet doctors tend to fear bleeds. And so there's a disconnect Mm -hmm. there. And if the doctor doesn't find out what the patient's values and preference are, preferences are, they may think bleeds are a bigger concern than strokes. And so that's an example of understanding the patient values and preferences and shared decision-making so that the patient has a role in understanding what treatment options are and in making the decisions to what fits best with the patient's values and preferences. So that's one piece of it. Another piece is that we have the digital health tools and having, taking AFib measurements, your ECG on your watch or on your phone with, a, with say, a CardioMobile or an Apple device or lots of other tools that are available as well, especially the photoplethysmography that's free on the phones. And so there are a lot of tools that have the potential to allow patients to better manage their AFib and to help their doctors understand what impact it's having on them. So for example, we find that patients will sometimes track their AFib, sometimes on spreadsheets, and they'll bring those big spreadsheets to you. And that I realize is counterproductive and we tell them a few data points for your doctor, but they'll use it to determine when it's time for them to move on to a procedure. And so I mentioned that in the article that I wrote for the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal. I think it was spring of last year where I surveyed AFib patients and we had the responses from 763 patients to the what digital devices are you using and how much are you using them and are you using multiple devices, et cetera. And so that was one of the things that was brought out in that survey is that patients were actually using it to determine when it was time to move on to the next step. And so with doctors, having those kinds of conversations with patients to help them know what are the best digital tools for managing their unique AFib and how the doctor would like to see the data. You don't want to see 12 rhythm strips a day, but if there's one that's concerning, you might want to see it. So I think the whole area of digital health is going to totally change how we manage this condition. So I think those are some really big deals. And then we continue to evolve in the procedures. And there are you know so many options for patients and knowing that procedures can help reverse the heart failure that comes from AFib, that's a game changer right there. So there are a lot of things that I think are right here with us now, but that are going to change the way we manage AFib in the future. Absolutely. And we're definitely seeing that in the clinic more and more. We're having patients who are presenting with either their Apple Watch readings or, or these other devices. It's really interesting that the point you made with regards to using that data from the patient's point of view to then decide what the next step is. I'd not heard that before, but that's really interesting. I've definitely had patients who've cataloged their AFib really well, and I've had some patients who have done it to the point where they catalog it with what they eat and how much they sleep and the activities, but I had not heard of using it as almost the trigger or a threshold to move on to the next procedure. It will be interesting for sure what happens with wearables and technology and how that influences our, not only as the provider, our awareness of how much AFib the patient's having or their AFib burden, but also I imagine there's a significant number of patients who got their AFib for or their Apple Watch or wear something for another reason, right. not necessarily to track their AFib, maybe to track their activity or see the pictures of their kids. And then all of a sudden you have a diagnosis of AFib and who's to say if whether 
those can prevent those cryptogenic strokes that we see and things like that. So that, that'll be an interesting area to follow. Absolutely. And I think there's one area that we're really not really understanding, but we are doing research in. And I think this is going to be an important area. And that's about trying to understand, is it microbleeds? Is it not being on an anticoagulant? So there's strokes. What is causing this relationship between AFib and dementia? So there's a lot of research that's happening now. The Brain AF study is one of many. I work with a lot of researchers that are focused on this area, and it's a really important one to me. My mother had AFib and dementia, and so this is one that we're really starting to tackle. And then another area that I think is going to be important is patient-initiated research and patient-funded research. And that's something that we launched last year. We've been working with a lot of researchers for a number of years on patient-initiated research, patients defining what are the things that were being studied that we felt needed to be studied. But now there's some things that are not being studied and nobody really wants to fund them, but we patients want the answers. And so we're actually stepping up and saying, we're going to fund them. And so we're starting to work on some of that now. I think that's a really important area for the AFib patient community going forward. Would you be able to share some of that with us? Can you give us a kind of a, a sneak <laughs> peek at some of the things that are very important to patients that for some reason we're not funding? Right. So certainly understanding the relationship of triggers and what can be done about those triggers. That was the end of one trigger study. That was done at UCSF with Greg Marcus. A group of us patients actually came up with that concept at the patient-powered research network that our organizations convened together. And so that study found that really alcohol was the only thing that was really correlated in the end of one study, but that was a starting point. We started better understanding what are real triggers and what are perceived triggers and and really laying some groundwork for some additional trigger research. Supplements is another area that's really important that there's nobody to fund research in. We're actually working with a a group in the Netherlands that is led by a top basic science researcher that has done a lot of work with some of the top names in the field, and she's well-respected as well. And so we're starting to help fund some of her research into some of the supplements. And we will be hopefully doing a call for research in the future around some of the supplements that AFib patients have found works But the research hasn't proven that it works. And so we're looking at what are the priorities in that space as well to hopefully help fund some research in that space too. So a lot of potential for things that we know seem to work for us, but there's no research proving that it works. And we want some proof that it works. Right. Absolutely. This has been so enlightening. Honestly, this has been so such a worthwhile episode. I hope everyone listens to it all the way through the end, because I think some of the most important points you made today are just here at the very kind of finish of this episode with respect to this idea of really a a patient-centered focus to their care. And that's, I mean, it seems like such a simple statement to make, right? Right. Of course, care should be patient-centered. 
But then to hear from you that there are certain initiatives that we're not necessarily engaged in or supporting like triggers or supplements, it kind of reminds us that maybe even as providers, there's a disconnect between what we're, what we think we're doing, what we think we hope we're doing for patients and some of the the deficits that still exist and how we still need to fill those and focus and evolve, not just as AFib ablationists, arrhythmia specialists, but also just as healthcare providers listening to our patients and kind of providing that full circle of care for them. Right. So it's been quite a privilege. Thank you so much for the opportunity for sharing with your audience about what the patient perspective is. And we hope everybody will check out stopafib.org because there's so much there to learn about AFib patients. Wonderful. Thank you, Melanie. Thank you for your time. And it was an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can catch more content at our website, allthingsafib.com, and check out our Twitter feed, at allthingsafib. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay regular, my friends. And now time for the obligatory disclaimer. All content on allthingsafib.com, including podcasts and blog conversations, are meant for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical care, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you have a medical condition, you should seek out a medical professional for consultation. Any use of information from allthingsafib.com or its associated content is at the user's own risk.